the hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life, and stood up on their feet a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have, I have done it, declares the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God 
not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But let me tell you, first of all, something about myself, which actually probably most of you know, and that is that I was born and bred in Sydney. And Rob and I moved here 20 years ago, and for many years after we moved here, we would make an annual journey to Sydney, a road trip with small children in the back of the car, and it would take us a whole day. And there were lots of Macca's stops and small dramas that we encountered as we travelled to Sydney. But these days, I tend to try and get there more often to see my parents, and I go for shorter times. I go on my own, and so I fly. And um, I love that. I love when the plane takes off and everything drops away and the people become tiny, small, invisible, finally. And the view expands, it opens up. And what you can see are tiny cars driving along winding roads and their houses become these little boxes that sit in the middle of the vast expanse of outer Melbourne. And then eventually, quickly, when we get to Sydney, I look out again and what do I see but my old life? I see Sydney and I'm reminded, I, I know so many places there and I have a kind of a memory of that old life, but it's a long time ago, 20 years ago. And in the opening chapters of Ephesians, what we're getting are those kind of big picture views. Last week in chapter one, we had this amazing cosmic view of what it means to belong to Christ. We were told that we have everything now that we need to live for him, every blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. And here in chapter 2, we get a different kind of big view, a kind of panoramic view, I'm calling it, where we see our past and our present, and also our future. The close-up shots in Ephesians come later, in the later chapters, and they are more like the road trip with the small children in the back, a bit messy and, uh, and more complex. But here what we have is this beautiful big picture and what Paul is saying is, I want you to look and see the difference it makes to have Jesus in your life. It is a stark difference, your before and after pictures. Like the passage we read in Ezekiel or that picture on the front of your booklet, the before shot is one of death, like a valley full of dry bones or a room full of skulls. And the picture of your life now, your resurrection life in Christ, is like that small child peering, full of wonder and potential and a future, ready to grow and flourish. And so what we're doing with this passage is taking in the view, trying to understand what we're seeing, what Paul is showing us, and figuring out how it helps us as people of the resurrection. How is this actually going to help us? as we live out this life we have in Christ. So take a look at the past in verses 1 to 3. Paul says, Before you came to Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, elsewhere known as Satan or the devil in other parts of the Bible. And all of us, he says, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. He's saying before, what we did was wrong things, transgressions, and we lived 
just according to our own desires and selfish ways. We were followers of a trio of masters, not like groupies with a band, but actually servants of three masters, the world, the devil, and our own desires, our flesh, he calls it. Basically saying we were following everyone and anything apart from God. The life we lived before had no future and our selfish hearts and misdirected lives meant that we deserved God's wrath, he says. God's anger which leads to death. What I want you to notice is that Paul says it's by our very nature that we are deserving of this wrath. This is not meant to be a guilt trip. The picture we have here is one of slavery. We all began by following the wrong master. Paul, can you notice he doesn't point the finger at anyone in particular. He doesn't list specific sins. This is the big picture. What he's doing is unveiling the tragic truth that all who are born human are born into sin and cannot help but live by their selfish desires. We have all inherited a spiritual disease, and it's fatal. When Paul describes us as dead here, what he's doing is emphasising just how powerless we are to do anything about it on our own. And with such a picture, the logical conclusion might be that God should just simply start from scratch, start over again. But that is not the panoramic shot. Because strangely enough, here is another life that we live. Nothing of this life comes from our own effort. We were dead in sin after all. But in verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, he says. Paul wants us to understand that God's nature means that he cannot do anything but love us and draw us back into life with himself. It may seem logical to us to scrap and start again, but not to God. Did you notice how many times he talks about how God is gracious? This is the key thing about this passage. When someone says the word over and over again, you know that's what they want you to hear. Verse 5 He says, God, it is by grace that you have been saved. In verse 7, in the coming ages, he has more grace to give you. The incomparable riches of his grace. I don't even know what that means. But somehow that's what God has next for us. Verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And he wants to be clear that even your faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is grace, not by works so no one can boast. So do you get the picture? We were born into death, but because Jesus died and lived again, God's wrath has been satisfied and we are saved. God's justice is perfectly measured and met in the cross of Jesus, but his love and his grace go on and on and on. They keep pouring out. It has no end. And the great news is that when we belong to Jesus, this picture of us being rescued by grace shows us that what we have is what he has, resurrection life, a totally different path and destination, a rich life where you get to sit on the same seat with Jesus. Did you notice that? 
you are seated with him in the heavenly realms. Not you will be seated. You are seated with him. Somehow you are sitting here now and you are also seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms, secure in his grace and love. And the promise is, as I said, of more, that in the coming ages God intends to show and give us more grace. This is the good news. This is the news that we have. This is what we're on about here. It's important to get the picture. And before I move on to why it's so helpful, I need to check with you first. Do you know where you stand in the picture? Have you moved from death to life? Just because you've come to church today doesn't mean you're a Christian. I always assume that there are people here who are listening and figuring it out, people who are yet to trust in him. And I don't know always who that is. Because humans see what people do, but they don't know the heart like God does. Sometimes it's easy to point and say, that person is evil. People do this, don't they? Look at what they've done. On the other hand, you might say, look at that person. They're obviously a follower of Jesus. Look how they love other people. Look how they worship God. But it's not always that simple. Behaviour is not actually the key identifier of who has come from death to life. The last church that we were part of in Sydney, we met a fantastic family, lovely couple and with teenage kids who I kind of looked up to for the way they parented. They were very involved in church life. And a few years after we moved here, I heard that the father had become a Christian and been baptised. And I was totally shocked because I thought he was already following Jesus. But no, it's turned out that Jim had started to go to church when he married his wife. And he really liked being there. He cared a lot about being accepted by others. He liked having a good reputation. He liked to fit in and be useful. But he realised one day that all his good work and his life in the church was for his own sake. It was about what he could get. And he realised it because he finally heard his heart and his ears were open to hear the good news that the way to really live and to secure eternal life into trust is to trust in Jesus as saviour and master of your life. And so on this day, much to the surprise of a lot of people, I believe, at the church, he switched allegiance quite publicly and he was baptised. And he was never the same again. He was still a nice man with a lovely family. But he became also a very vulnerable man who was not ashamed to tell other people that he loved the Lord Jesus. And sometimes with tears, he would declare his faith. And I have to say, Jim's life started also to look a bit messier than it used to. And I don't know whether that's because he didn't let us in or show us or whether he gave up control. But in the years ahead, his family experienced all kinds of troubles and he kept trusting and he kept finding his joy in Jesus. Well, maybe today is the day for one of you to move from death to life for the first time. And if you have heard that God loves you and wants to be gracious to you and you want to receive it, it is yours to take. We only need to say yes to God. Or if you're wondering about this and if maybe this is you that you need to move from death to life but you want to know more, please talk to someone about it. Talk to me or Jess or someone else that you know here. Because this big picture view that we have makes it clear that this is a life and death 
situation. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except by me. And he also said, we must be born again. Now, if you're someone who's already moved from death to life, I want to encourage you to keep remembering this view of your past and present life side by side. Because when the details of day-to-day life and living by faith are frustrating or difficult, it helps us. It helps us because it makes two things very clear about God and one thing about ourselves. Two things about God. The first thing about God is that his nature is always to be gracious to us. As I've said, we're already seated with Christ. You don't go back and forth from death to life. When I was a teenager, I was a chronic converter. Convertee? Is that right? I always had a guilty conscience. So whenever someone said what, I, what I've just said before, I'd think, That's got, I've got to do that again. No, that, God is not surprised when we mess up, okay? He's gracious to us. We are seated with him. When we say yes, he holds us fast. Now, um, the second thing that this shows us, this picture about God, is that he can do impossible things. Impossible. And as you live the resurrection life, you might think sometimes, I'm never going to change. This part of me that's so frustrating is never going to change. And you might also um, look around you as you think about our mission and our desire to reach people in this place that it is impossible for your friends and families or people in your neighbourhoods or workplace to move from death to life. All this week, as I've been thinking about this passage, I've been thinking about that Ezekiel passage as well. I love how God stands with Ezekiel and the question is asked, can these dry bones live? Who asks the question? Well, you might think it's Ezekiel, but it's God. It's God asking Ezekiel, can these, what do you think? Can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel says, oh, you alone know God. Good answer, right? <laughs> you are powerful, you are mighty, but look, doesn't look good to me. And that is how I often feel. I've lived in the inner north of Melbourne for 20 years, and this to me feels like a dry, hard place for people to come to know Jesus. But nothing is impossible with God. And it's not about me having the right training or strategies to say the, exactly the right words. or Look, those things help. Hopefully they make me useful in God's plan. But God can do anything. And like we see in the passage, he can use people and help them to bring others to know Jesus. His spirit can change anyone's heart. And so I want you, invite you to hear the question yourself from God as you think about your friends and family. Can these dry bones live? And answer honestly and ask God to help you to pray and to trust him for your friends and family. God can do impossible things. He can bring dead people back to life. Well, two things about God and one thing about ourselves. The thing that you notice when you look at the before and after picture and how we come from death to life is that we're totally passive in the whole experience. Did you notice that? Not by your works. So no one can boast. It would be nice to take credit, wouldn't it? Look, I'm a nice person. I I really fit in here. This is God's work. We are kind of passive. It's only by his grace that we are saved. Only by his grace that we are transformed. God has the agency and the power in our lives. And it doesn't just stop at that moment of change. That is what the resurrection life is about. 
letting God have the power and control of our lives. How does that make you feel? It might sound like bliss to some of you who do a lot of work in the week and would love someone else to step in. But I think actually, deep down, for a lot of us, this is a hard thing to hear. Because our culture values agency, personal agency and competency and personal success. It matters greatly to most of us. It's hard to know what to do with this idea that we don't achieve or earn our salvation and our resurrection life. But I want to say, let's embrace it. Ask God to help us to embrace it. Because as we go into into Ephesians, if you know the book, we are going to discover what the nitty-gritty details of this life looks like. And there are going to be times where you're going to question, do I want this or can I do it? Because to be followers of Jesus is to walk in his footsteps. And that is out of step with the world. When we struggle, it's good to step back and remember that it's by God's grace we have new life and it's by his power we are being changed. The way we grow and mature in resurrection life has less to do with proactive ideas and words like push or succeed or try harder and more to do with responsive-sounding words like trust and surrender, rest and abide, watch and wait, hope and pray. These are the words of the resurrection life. And our desire at Merry Creek is to see each and every person flourish and mature in faith, to really get traction with the resurrection life by using these kind of ideas. I don't know whether you know that, you probably know our vision statement. Clifton Hill knows our vision statement very well by now. Uh, But alongside our vision statement, we have what are called through lines. And I've actually got them printed in the booklet today for you on pages eight and nine. I'm not sure if they're the most up-to-date version, Um, but they're they're pretty good. Um, Anyway, these are, as you can see, Five key transformation statements pointing to the true identity shift offered through faith in Christ. And they run through, we hope, the ministries here at Mary Creek Anglican. And the first one is what we've talked about today. We want everyone here to move from death to life. And there's that verse from Ephesians 2. But what I want to invite you to do is to take these away with you and read them and pray with them. They've actually been quite significant for me in my own um, growth. In the, I think I've been here for eight years, over eight years now. And sometimes when I'm struggling, I come back to them and I read them and I think, what is the one that God is trying to work in me at the moment? Uh, all of them at one time or another, and I return to a couple of them time and time again. I can tell you which ones later if you want to know. But at the moment, I think the death to life one is this passage, but also that last one is the one that we need to notice and remember when we think about the big picture, striving to abiding. And the statement says, I will not achieve true freedom, transcendence or joy by working really hard and trying to prove myself, but by abiding in Jesus and drawing strength from the Holy Spirit, remaining in Jesus' love and being obedient to the Father. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. So what will God be doing in you? How is God shaping you in this resurrection life? I invite you to do some passive, responsive kind of things this week. Maybe to read or to pray. 
to let God ask that question, can these dry bones live, whether they're your dry bones or someone else, and to trust, to express your faith in him and not in yourself.